Greetings, I'm Josh Lowe, and this is NBA Retrospective. First of all, the people have spoken. I posted a question during our last episode about Victor Wembanyama and the San Antonio Spurs. How many league championships would the Spurs win with Wembanyama? Had the options of zero, one, two, or three or more? People have spoken, and the answer is three or more. I can't argue with that. I've seen Wembanyama play. He does look similar to Tim Duncan, with whom the Spurs won five championships. However, this episode is going to focus on another team, the Spurs' opponent in their first NBA championship back in 1999, their finals opponent, and that was the New York Knicks. And the reason I'm focusing on the Knicks is because they are one of only two teams, the other being the 2023 Miami Heat, who reached the NBA Finals as an eight seed. And much of this episode, specifically the non-statistical content, and in fact, all of this first episode, that's a good point to stop at right there. All of this first episode is going to be non-statistical. The statistical content we'll get to in our next episode of NBA Retrospective. This will be a two-part series on the 1999 New York Knicks. They are worth two episodes, again, because of being the only eight seed up until 2023 to reach the NBA Finals. And the non-statistical content, much of it, draws heavily on and frequently references the novel Blood in the Garden by Sports Illustrated's Chris Herring. Now, if you have not read Blood in the Garden by Herring, I highly recommend that you pick it up. It should be available at local public libraries. Those of you who might not want to spend the money on it, it's worth a read for sure. Because Herring's novel essentially serves as a biography of the Knicks throughout the 1990s, including this final season of the decade. Now, I cannot, I cannot possibly cover the Knicks as comprehensively or as interestingly as Herring did, so that's why I highly recommend reading the book if you followed the Knicks then or if you follow the Knicks now. Now, Getting into some background on the Knicks, and again, why I'm covering this specific team. So before 2023, the 1999 Knicks were the only eight seed to reach an NBA Finals. Ironically, the team they beat in the first round to reach that Finals, the number one seed they beat in that first round, was the Miami Heat. And the Miami Heat were the team who finally equaled the fate this past season in 2023. And the Heat actually lost to the Nuggets in the finals by the same count as the 1999 Knicks lost to the Spurs in the finals. That was four games to one. And I felt I could not do a statistics-based podcast series on the 1999 season without including this team who accomplished such a rare statistical feat. Again, it's only been done twice in NBA history. And the other aspect, as those of you who follow this podcast regularly know, I tend to have three to four featured teams per season. A single featured team within a larger episode does not seem to do justice to a team 
who accomplished, again, such a rare feat. Even an eight seed beating a one in the first round is rare. It's happened only six times in league history, including, again, in 2023. So for an eight seed to go all the way to the finals, you get your own episode. Um, thank you, or you're, or you're welcome, whatever the perspective is, Knicks fans. Now, an interesting note on this team is that Chuck Daly, the coach of the Bad Boys Pistons team that we covered in an earlier season of NBA Retrospective, uh, listen to that if you have not, it's entitled Bad Boys, was actually offered the head coach job for the Knicks in 1995 and turned it down. And as you might have inferred from Herring's title, the 1990s Knicks played a similar style to the late 1980s Bad Boys Pistons. Um, the title Blood in the Garden, Blood obviously referring to the very tough style of basketball. The Garden refers to the Knicks' home arena, Madison Square Garden. So with the statistical accomplishment and the Knicks as spiritual successors to our previous featured team, there was no leaving them out of our coverage of the 1999 NBA season. Now, an interesting comment by Chris Herring was that someone could have mistaken the Knicks locker room in 1999 for the set of Ricky Lake. And I'm not going to act as Ricky Lake's successor on this podcast. There's no way I could do it that well. But the drama preceding and amid the 1999 season makes the team's achievement even more remarkable, which means I do need to cover it. Now, as most of you know, the 1999 season was cut to 50 games due to a lockout. If you want a complete analysis of the lockout, you can find that at The Ringer. I do not typically get into the financial aspects, and I won't do it here. But I will say that the lockout was much harder on the Knicks than it was on other teams. Starting the season later would make an already old team that much older, and the average age of the Knicks in the 1999 season was 30.2 years. Now, keep in mind that this is before the one-and-done rule, okay? Guys could and did come out to the NBA out of high school. And keeping that in mind, so that means guys are starting at 18, 30 is not that young. And this held true particularly for the team's number three center, Herb Williams, he turned 41 years old early in the season, although granted he played only about six minutes per game, but that's tough on a 41-year-old in the NBA. Um, the impact was much more significant on Patrick Ewing for both the player and the team. Now, Ewing was president of the NBA Players Union and was coming off a wrist injury from the previous season. Despite being 36 years old, he was the Knicks' centerpiece, both literally, he played center, and figuratively. In other words, he was the star of the team, the backbone of the team. And Ewing's role as Players Union president slowed the rehabilitation process on his wrist injury. And obviously that's going to be impactful. Once again, you're making an old team or older by starting the season in January. And the quote-unquote preseason which is typically almost all of October, was only two weeks in January this year due to the lockout. And again, that compressed timeline took its physical toll on an already aging team. Now, there are two major trades 
that we need to discuss that occurred before the season. And again, these trades are highly dramatic, not so much in the trades themselves, more in the way that they went down. And this is one of this is likely one of the things that caused Herring to draw that comparison to a daytime talk show. Um, first major trade was Charles Oakley was traded to the Toronto Raptors for Marcus Camby. And the drama here was less in the trade itself and more in the way it went down. Now, Charles Oakley was always a tough physical inside player. Trading him angered many fans, but he was 35 years old, and that style of play, that physical style of play down by the rim, tends to age players very quickly. Now, Marcus Camby, by contrast, was only 24, and the two players played similar styles, so perhaps the trade makes sense on paper. But if you dig a little deeper, it's natural to have questions asked. Raptors coach Butch Carter criticized Camby's practice habits, specifically not attending, and note that this occurred over three years before Allen Iverson's legendary, we talking about practice, man. How silly is that? That's maybe this is Allen Iverson before Allen Iverson. Um, so Carter was also concerned about Camby's injury-prone nature, which might make the trade sound less sensible, trading a tough, aging big man for a young, injury-prone big man who doesn't practice consistently. That, uh, that causes questions to be asked. Okay, now I want to note here that Madison Square Garden is located about 90 minutes from Seaside Heights, New Jersey, via the Garden State Parkway. And that's appropriate because the next section is going to resemble an episode of Jersey Shore. That's my comparison. Harry made the Ricky Lake comparison. I'm making the Jersey Shore comparison. It's going to get dramatic, and I'm just warning our listeners that it is going to get dramatic. Ernie Grunfeld, the GM of the Knicks, asked to complete a deal with Raptors GM Glenn Grunwald alone. That means no coaches. Okay? And that is somewhat of a backdoor type of tactic because for those of you who also follow football, there's a quote from Bill Parcells. It says, if you're going to expect me to make the dinner, at least let me shop for some of the groceries. In other words, if you want me to win with this talent, then at least let me help you look for talent so that I can win. And so trying to complete a trade like that without coaches, that can be seen as underhanded, all right? So that's important to know. And the ultimate trade was Marcus Camby to the Knicks for Charles Oakley, the 44th pick in the following year, and cash. So it wasn't just a straight-up trade for Oakley. That's another thing that's noteworthy. Granted, second-round picks in the NBA often don't pan out, but still, it's not nothing. And so Raptors coach Butch Carter to GM Glenn Grunewald. Glenn, I'm telling you now, this trade is going to cost Ernie, meaning Knicks GM Ernie Grunfeld, his job. And after 42 games with the Knicks at 21 and 21, 500, Carter's words hit their mark. Grunfeld was relieved of his duties. Yet, Ernie Grunfeld was responsible for every player on the roster that ultimately won the Eastern Conference except for Patrick Ewing, who came to the Knicks earlier. The Knicks did offer Grunfeld his job back following the season, but Grunfeld had already agreed, and quite understandably, 
to become the Milwaukee Bucks GM following his firing. The other side, and also a dramatic side, is that Oakley did not want to leave the Knicks. He enjoyed playing in New York, and the Raptors were not a contending team in 1999. We discussed them in our previous episodes on this season, and indeed they were founded only three years earlier, beginning play in 1995-96. And the Raptors GM, Glenn Grunwald, and Coach Carter had to fly to Oakley's off-season home in Atlanta to get him. And they actually found Oakley while he was lifting weights in preparation for the Knicks season. And while I'm not privy to the actual discussion between those parties, I can't imagine it was an easy sell given that Oakley was 6 feet 9 and 245 pounds. So yeah, that was an ugly situation there with that trade. Um, And not so much, again, not so much the trade itself, but just in the mechanisms by which it went down. And we have a second trade that was also very dramatic. That was John Starks, Terry Cummings, and Chris Mills to the Warriors for Latrell Sprewell. And the acquisition of Latrell Sprewell was controversial from the start. Sprewell had been suspended for the previous year for choking. Let's pause here for a second. Choking former Warriors coach P.J. Carlissimo in a practice dispute. And this was also not Sprewell's first violent incident in a practice. Sprewell came to a practice, a Warriors practice, with a 2 by 4 attempting to resolve a dispute with teammate Jerome Kersey in 1995. 2 by 4 for those of you who don't know, meaning a um, 2 by 4 piece of wood. And Sprewell later threatened to come back with a gun. This was before all of the... Um, active shooters that the active shooters started primarily with Columbine in 1999. But obviously, if you threaten to come to practice with a gun, it's no good. I've, this is also well before the Gilbert Arenas situation, where he essentially did the same kind of thing, and it was much more publicized. But in any case. Uh, this is a player who's coming to the Knicks who's got a history of violence. That's the bottom line here. And Herring called Sprewell, quote, the most demonized athlete at the time and outlined the risks of bringing him to a media market as strong and as large as New York's. So the question, the obvious question then is, why do you do it? Okay? And the answer is because Sprewell made three all-star teams in five years before his suspension in 1997, And Sprewell also led the league in both games, 82, and minutes played, 43.1, in 1993-94. And additionally, Sprewell led the Warriors and finished 5th in the NBA in points per game with 24.6 in 1996-97. So the scoring and most certainly the minutes. Again, remember the Knicks were a very old team this year. Those are assets the aging Knicks sorely needed. However, this type of move will not sit well with many fans. There was much discussion about this trade and the wisdom of it on ESPN and other national sports media networks at the time. And the big question that I would ask is that if social media existed at the time, if trades and trade rumors could be communicated to the world in seconds, much in the way that they are now, would that trade have still happened or would the Knicks have balked at the potential backlash? And the Knicks knew, obviously, that Sprewell would be traded away from the Warriors following his suspension. There was no way to make that situation work 
after such a violent incident. And that seems even more toxic than the James Harden situation with the Philadelphia 76ers. And we heard all about that this past offseason. Ultimately, that landed him with James Harden, I mean, with the Clippers. You heard Jussie last week with that prediction. That was spot on, Jussie. Thank you. Now, Nick's owner, Dave Checkets, wanted to speak to Sprewell before finalizing the trade. And League Commissioner David Stern also had reservations about Sprewell playing in New York because, again, of the market size in New York. And that, again, calls to mind the social media issue. If it were today, how would that go down? And Sprewell previously interacted with the media, a member whom, and a member of the media asked Sprewell about his daughter following a pit bull attack on his daughter. And Sprewell's response was, blank happens, and the blank rhymes with bit. And Sprewell expressed to Checkets that he was remorseful about the incident and brought that same daughter out to the interview. And the issue is that the media coded that response, that blank happens response, as being insensitive. He was not, in other words, perhaps he was not thinking about his daughter. Um, I might argue, and some other people might argue, that that's a bit over, that, that's a bit of an excessive read into the situation, but you do have to face, again, that goes back to the same social media question. If you, if you looked at that now, what would the reaction to it be? Um, and the ex- Sprewell's explanation for that quote was that he wanted to keep his personal feelings about personal situations personal and not share them with the media. And I, I agree with that viewpoint. However, um, the in the instantane in the culture of instantaneity that is current social media, and the likely culture of instantaneity that was New York, of such a large media market, I know that people can read that a different way. And the other issue is that the Knicks had to trade Terry Cummings, Chris Mills. And most significantly, John Starks for Sprewell. And that's controversial with the fans because Starks was a beloved figure throughout the 1990s. And Herring outlines that very well in his book, so take a look at that if you can. And many fans thought trading Starks for a coach choker, essentially, was a mistake. And again, the Knicks, the why why do you do it? Because the Knicks selectly saw Sprewell as a durable player based on prior years, and durability was an aspect they would sorely need because, again, Knicks average age 30.2 years, and quote-unquote preseason was only two weeks, so that resulted in poor conditioning all around. But while all teams had that problem, it hits older teams harder. Okay? And ultimately, the team will be forced to play 50 games in 85 days. So why not bring a durable guy in there? And another factor in all of this drama is that Herring stated that the team did not really know each other on offense initially due to the trades. And of course, injuries took their toll. The Knicks were only 11-9 and after the first 20 games, which is not a bad record, but it's well below internal expectations. And note that I'm not talking about statistical expectations here. That's still coming up. We'll do that in the next episode. I mean internal expectations as in what the guys in the building expected. Now here's a problem. Marcus Camby, the guy they traded franchise cornerstone Charles Oakley for, presumably to get younger, 
became winded and had to sit five minutes into his home debut as a Nick. Not a good look. And the Knicks suffered an embarrassing 76-63 loss to the Chicago Bulls. Yes, that same Chicago Bulls team that won 13 games fewer than ELO projection that we talked about in our main podcast on this season in Game 20. And Sprewell and Camby, the two big trades that they did, those guys went a combined 7 for 19 for the floor for only 23 points. And franchise cornerstone Patrick Ewing sustained an Achilles injury early in Game 18 and would be out for Games 19 through 24. So that sets the stage for you in terms of all of the drama that the Knicks were dealing with. And obviously we will talk about the rest of their season in a subsequent episode. But we're also going to look at the basketball analytics standpoint in the subsequent episode. That's the main purpose of this podcast. One of the things I want to know, can old teams still succeed? Okay, for perspectives, the Knicks average age was about 30.2 years. No current teams in the NBA have average player age over 30. League average at the time was 28, so maybe not as old as it sounds, but still older than average, and that hurts a team in a 50-game season. And until 1999, again, no eight seed had ever reached an NBA Finals, so why did this Knicks team do it? What metric or metrics did they succeed in to get there? Was the success mostly related to the season length? If we have a chance to look at it, how does this team compare to the 2023 Heat, the other team to accomplish this? And we would like to answer these questions with the help of the ELO and four factors metrics. And again, if you follow the previous episodes, you know what those metrics are. So we want to answer those questions with the help of the ELO and four factors metrics for the 1998-99 Knicks. And we'll also look at some four factors metrics for individual players, Oakley versus Camby, Starks versus Sprewell, and acknowledge the limitation that the um, four factors individually is going to be impacted by the teams that Camby and uh, Starks, or excuse me, that Oakley and Starks went to, that being the Raptors and the Warriors. The Raptors specifically, they were not a good team in 98-99. Again, they had only recently entered the league. And the 35-year-old Oakley was not likely a great fit on that team because they were younger. And we can see if four-factor statistics reflect that. So those are the types of questions that we're going to talk about in our next episode of NBA Retrospective. I just wanted to set the stage for this season with the Knicks for you. Um... Just put the emphasis, em, emphasize that it was not by any means an easy season. And until, that, until next time, I'm Josh Lowe, and this is NBA Retrospective. <laughs>